We'll be reading the uh, Thessalonica and Berea sections of chapter 17 of Acts up through verse 15. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Good morning. Let's try that one more time. That was a sleepy good morning. Good morning. Amen. Hey, let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. As we have our word open before us, I think the Lord's going to teach us all some great things in the word this morning. So let's go to the Lord. Lord, as your servants, we are asking to hear and know and understand this word that's open before us, this word that you have breathed out, that we might have hope, that we might be encouraged, that we might truly live. And so, Father, we ask that you would move us that you would shape us, that you would do what is necessary. Maybe perhaps there needs to be a a shaking up this morning. Whatever it takes, Lord, that we might hear and act on your holy word. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit in us would be evident. And I pray, Lord, you would teach us through your word, that you would illumine our minds to understand what this text says. And remind us today, Lord, of our great need for you. And I pray that we would be a people who regularly exercise more of you and less of me. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, most of you here realize that that Paul made three missionary journeys 
to the end of the earth, right? Acts 1.8. Most of you probably also know that Paul made a fourth journey to Rome. Most of you, if asked, could point to some of the ministry highlights in the life of Paul, I'm sure. If we went down the row, I'm sure I could ask you a couple questions. You'd be able to give me some answers about the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet, while there's familiarity with Paul and his journeys, I wonder if there's familiarity with and desire to imitate the heart of Paul. Perhaps you would prefer that I say, imitate the heart of Christ. I'm fairly certain that Paul, in calling others to imitate him, had at the forefront a pointing to Christ... His life, led by the Holy Spirit, pointed imperfectly, yes, but it pointed unmistakably in the direction of Jesus. You see, when your life purpose is to live for Jesus, to be a witness for Jesus all your days, your daily living is going to reflect the one you follow. Or as Jesus put it, where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. You cannot follow two masters here. Once Paul in Acts chapter 9, once he is converted, once his heart changed, once he repented and turned from sin and turned by faith toward God, there was no looking back. No turning around. From Acts 9 forward, Paul is committed to following his one Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Can you honestly, before God this morning, call others to imitate you? Is your life today characterized by Holy Spirit living, unmistakably pointing others in the direction of Jesus? Are you here today, perhaps, with a head full of knowledge about this book? And you know a lot about the Apostle Paul. You know a lot about his journeys. But is there a lot of head knowledge and very little here in the heart? Is there an emptiness there? Are you concerned at all about what may be this gaping hole between what you know about the Bible and how you're living the Bible? Paul is in the midst of the second missionary journey, for the record, as we're going through about the middle way point. He's, he's traveling through. He's, verse, chapters 13 and 14 we covered the first missionary journey. We had the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And now in 16 he has circled back through some area and, and he just recently was in Philippi. But the heart of Paul... I'd like you this morning to take inventory, to take a look at the heart of Paul as we study the text here in these first nine verses of Acts 17. As he ministers to these brothers in Thessalonica, how would you assess his heart? And then ask yourself, where is my heart currently? And and then follow that up with another question. Is the Lord pleased? That's always a great question to ask. Is the Lord pleased with where my heart is? 
Paul has just departed Philippi, having been beaten with rods. Remember that? Spent some time in maximum security. Saw a wonderful miracle of the Lord. Gathered together with Lydia in her home and the brethren that were meeting now in that church in her home. And they departed on their way. You know, I wonder, as he makes this 100-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica, that's about what we're talking here, a journey of about 100 miles. I wonder if he reflected on what God did at midnight back in the Philippian jailhouse. I'm sure, no doubt, as he's traveling, he's still nursing some wounds as they journeyed that Ignatian way, going west, looking forward to life in the big city, looking forward to putting forth the word of God once again. Thessalonica was a a port city. It served as the capital of the province of Macedonia. At this particular time, some 200,000 people populated this city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was located about 50 miles away from Mount Olympus. You heard of Mount Olympus? Mount Olympus was that place, the location, the site of the pantheon of gods, the Greek gods and goddesses. The culture here in Thessalonica is a Greek culture. But there did reside, it seems, uh, a significant, some level, some degree, population of Jews, as noted by the synagogue in the text. So if you look at the text and you see verse 1 and 2, it says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Remember, Philippi didn't have a synagogue, did it? Thessalonica has one. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, after having been beaten and imprisoned in in Philippi, one might wonder right here whether Paul is going to throw in the towel. If you remember back in his first missionary journey, he was stoned. He was tracked down in a couple of different cities, and they finally got him in Lystra, left him to die. And yet he keeps going. He keeps going. He gets up. The brethren are right. He keeps going. Persecution, opposition, suffering, trials. And Paul keeps going. As you look closely at the heart of Paul, I believe one of the first things we see here in the text, thinking context, is is that Paul had a heart of endurance. A heart of endurance. Where, Where many would have quit and returned home, Paul stays and keeps on going. Where many would have been inclined to to back off from voicing their Christianity, Paul unashamedly opens his mouth for Jesus. Paul understood something that we need to get a taste of, I believe. He realized that following Jesus is an endurance test. It's an endurance test. Following Jesus is going all the way to the finish line, crossing the tape, straining. You ever see the pictures of those runners crossing the tape? And when they're crossing the tape, they're straining with everything they have to go through the finish line. This is not some stroll. They're straining with everything they have. To go across the finish line. 
See, for Paul, a passive voice for Christ was not an option. He, he wouldn't content himself being a follower of Jesus, just making tents and sitting passively by, waiting for anyone that might happen to come by to speak to him. No, Paul was on a collision course with the opposition due to the fact that the gospel just kept coming out of his mouth. But his heart was set on finishing the race. I love these words, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. He's speaking to the group of the Ephesian elders. And Paul says this in verse 24. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may, listen, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, it was Paul's heart of endurance, a realization that the Lord, the Lord had called him to run this race. If the Lord has called you, church, to run for him, how are you responding? What has the Lord called you to? You see, if Jesus marched up the hill, the hill we call Mount Calvary, Golgotha, and he willingly took nails in his hands and feet for me and for you. How could we turn away? Regardless of the difficulty. The song we sing, his wounds have paid my ransom. If that is so, how is it that my heart could entertain other quarters? You see, the 100-mile journey was something special, I believe, here midway through this second journey. Thinking context, big picture, thinking about all that Paul's encountered and gone through. This 100-mile journey in and of itself says something of Paul's heart of endurance. You might wonder if there was any evidence of Paul's heart of endurance, this characteristic of enduring, this pressing on for the sake of the Lord. Any signs of this that the church in Thessalonica followed suit? I believe there is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 3 and 4. Paul says, We're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because, listen, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves, Paul says, boast of you, we're boasting of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. A heart of endurance to move the gospel forward for the sake of Christ. The Thessalonians became known for their enduring in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution. Notice here in Acts 17 that when he arrived in Thessalonica, he spent some time in the synagogue as his custom was. And we know from the text that he spent three Sabbaths. Verse 2 tells us that. He, he went into the synagogue for three Sabbaths. 
reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures. And so if we take another good look at Paul here, we see um, a heart of love for his people. Not only does he have a heart of endurance, but we see a heart of love for his people. His custom was going into the synagogue upon arriving in town. And sometimes, like Philippi, there, there were no synagogues to be found. But on this occasion, entering into Thessalonica, he sees a synagogue and makes a beeline for it. Why? Turn, if you will, in just a moment to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I just begin reading at the beginning of Romans 9. Paul is writing this. He says, I tell you, tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. The sorrow and grief that Paul had in his heart was because of his countrymen, his brethren. They didn't know the Lord. If you skip one chapter in chapter 10 of Romans, we see this heart cry. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That was Paul's heart cry. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ, the one they stumbled over, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why does he go into the synagogue? He enters the synagogue, I believe, for a quick point of contact in the city. See, when he's going into a city, the synagogue becomes that immediate point of contact. These people gathered in the synagogue were Jews. They were God-fearers. They were people familiar with the words, hearing the law, hearing the prophets read. Paul had a heart of love for his people to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He had a heart of love for his people. This spurred him forward and no doubt served as a catalyst to endure. People need the Lord. Not just in the first century, they need him today. Whether Jews or Gentiles, Paul was aware and Paul was turned on to the fact that people needed Jesus. And having himself been knocked down, been blinded on the road to Damascus, Paul's heart is captured for the cause of Christ. And the one thing you can say about Paul and his ministry is this. He loved people. Paul loved people. He cared about people. He made the effort to reach out to his own countrymen for the sake of the gospel. With much of the opposition, remember this, much of the opposition came from whom? The Jews. We see it again today. Much of the opposition coming from the Jews, he continues to endure. He keeps on entering the synagogue on the basis of what? His love for his people. He 
He ministered to those in Thessalonica. In fact, much like a set of parents would minister and train up their own children. And this is a great picture because it shows Paul's heart of love toward his own people. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives. Why? Because you had become dear to us. Just a few verses later, in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. You see these images. Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica and he's giving to them instruction just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, just as a father does and charges his own children. This is the way I ministered. What a great way to minister. It says something about his heart, doesn't it? His heart for people. His love for them. Paul's heart to serve God manifested itself in loving the people in Thessalonica. How's your heart in this regard? How's your heart in this regard? Do you love people? You know, some of you in here, you've heard it said, I'm sure, but you, you think about your job and you think, oh, well, my job would be great if I just didn't have to interact with the people. Do you love those sitting in the row next to you? By the way, I know there's oftentimes we tell the children, you know, to make sure we're, we're sitting in the chair, we're looking, facing the front and what have you. But just for a moment, if you look down and look around and look around you, look in front, look behind you. Can you honestly say that you love these people? Does your heart beat a little bit faster when you look around and you consider God has placed your life here, these other parts of the body? How does your life reflect your love for people? Because, you know, it's one thing and it's good and it's, it's, it's one thing to just nod our head and go, yeah, I love people. I love these people. I believe John says in his epistle, let us not love in word or tongue, but in what? Action and in truth. Is there anything in here, in this heart, is there anything in here boiling over to see that other parts of the body get ministered to? Any love in here toward the brethren? I think if you take another good look at Paul, you see a heart for the word of God. Notice that for three Sabbaths, he reasons in the synagogue. I want you to see the source of his reasoning. Let's not miss this. He went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them. What are those next three words? From the scriptures. Please don't miss that. 
Paul had a heart to endure for the Lord's sake. He had a heart to love people, to share his life with them. And he had a heart for the scriptures. Paul reasoned with those in the synagogue. You might say that he dialogued. That's where the word comes from. He reasoned. The elegami. Dialogue. He dialogued. He was proving. He was persuading his listeners. His reasoning may very well have been included, included this, this idea of back and forth, this Q&A format. You see, some of you, I believe, truly like what this word says. But deep down, you can't say that you really have a heart for this word of God. It occupies a place on your shelf. It's maybe in your car. It maybe is under your bed. Perhaps you are one who is always finding yourself saying, I can't find my Bible. That's not good. I've grown fond of Psalm 119. It's a psalm about a man who loves God and loves God's word. Listen to just a couple of the lines. I won't read the entire 176 verses to you. But there's a few that I just want to put forward to you. Give you a sampling of it. He says in, in verse 4, You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. You've commanded us to do that. How about verse 9? How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to a, your word. Or that, that verse, two verses later, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 28, my soul melts with heaviness. Anybody's soul in here melting? You feel him beat down, bogged down, weighed down with heaviness. The psalmist says, strengthen me according to your word. The word strengthens. Or verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. That is so true in a spiritual sense because life comes as we hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by this word of God. And verse 105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is there in you a similar love for God's word, church? Paul, on three Sabbaths, he makes his way into the Thessalonian synagogue and he reasons from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating. Those are, those are key participles, words that are going to describe this reasoning. That the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So here's what he does. I want you to look at his heart. And how he handles the word of truth. He reasons with his listeners by explaining. The word explaining has in mind to, to open. It's the same word, in fact, that's used by Luke in his gospel in chapter 24, verse 45. That little summary verse there, verse 45, says that he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He opened their understanding. Paul is reasoning from the scriptures, explaining or opening it up to them. But he also reasons from the scriptures, demonstrating. Demonstrating. The word has in mind to, to place 
alongside of something else. To present evidence. So watch what he does here. Paul has a heart for God's word. And his desire is that people hear and do what it says. His heart is to expound, explain the scriptures and demonstrate the validity of the scriptures. How does he demonstrate this word of God? And I believe one writer says this very well in thinking about what gets placed along what as he's explaining, as he's demonstrating He says, by showing the predictions coincided with the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, Paul is able to effectively explain and demonstrate from the scriptures a compelling gospel for the Jewish listener in particular. So here's what this setting alongside. What's being said alongside what? You have predictions in the law and the prophets and Psalms. And you have fulfillments. He's demonstrating by taking what the scripture says and he's showing them that these scriptures point to Jesus. He's he's essentially setting history with scripture. He's setting Jesus with the Christ. These are good things. He's explaining. He's demonstrating He's showing. And the writer goes on and says, it remains an indispensable part of Christian testimony in our day in which some theologians are attempting to drive a wedge between the historical Jesus of the Gospels and a mystical Christ of Christian theology and experience. You see, after setting forth an explanation of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension, second coming... He calls everyone's attention to Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures. And with a heart for the Scriptures, Paul is unafraid to say, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. The Jesus in these Scriptures is the one called the Messiah, the one you've been looking for. He is the one all of these predictions point to. He is the only one, in fact, who fulfills the predictions found in these Scriptures. You might imagine him as he's explaining and demonstrating through the Word. You know, I was drawn to thinking about what passages of Scripture would he have shared? And if you just scan some of the the passages in Scripture, Psalm 2, you you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, speaking of the resurrection, and in there he says, Psalm says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's Jesus. Psalm 110, the Lord ruling and reigning. Psalm 118 talks about the stumbling stone. And he's, he's no doubt using that and pulling that in and saying, this is the stone. He's the stone. Jesus is the stone. He's the one you've been stumbling over. Isaiah 52 and 53, Christ is that suffering servant you're reading about. Psalm 22, where you see the images and the and sights of Christ on the cross. And it begins, why, God, why have you forsaken me? The very words spoken by Christ on the cross. You see, to have a heart for the word of God as a follower of Jesus means that you adhere to what this word says. It means that you take what it says 
and deliver that message. Be careful that you do not present to others a gospel that flows out of your own opinion. See that what gets delivered is anchored and rooted firmly in God's word. It's his word. And remember, his word has the power to save souls. Amen? His word has the power to save. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, for from you, church, Thessalonica, from you the word has sounded forth. This is good. Not only in Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica was, but also in Achaia. Achaia is, we'll get to that in a moment, that's uh, down in the region where Corinth is. But also in every place. From you the word of God is sounded forth in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. That word sounded forth is an interesting word in the scripture. Paul says that the word of God has sounded forth from you. The word has in mind to echo. Echo. What are they echoing? What's the church echoing? They're echoing this word of God. They're making sure that what gets sounded forth, what is echoed is the very word of God. Church, that's a great instruction for us. We too need to be about that very same thing. Causes perhaps a question for us to ask, are we using our mouths to echo the world or the word? What comes out? What are we echoing? What words are flowing out of our mouth? To have a heart for the word of God as a follower of Jesus means also that you receive his word as it's intended to be heard. I believe we can go to school right here in the church of Thessalonica once again in chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says about the people in Thessalonica. He says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, listen to what they did. You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The Thessalonians welcomed the preached word, and they received it as the very words of God. In other words, they submitted themselves to God's word. This was a church that when God spoke from his word, they obeyed. They walked that way. It took the Thessalonians three Sabbaths to get this message. It took them three Sabbaths to get this message. The church began after three Sabbaths of reasoning from the word explaining and demonstrating that this Jesus of the scriptures is the Christ. They heard the preached word, they became persuaded and submitted themselves, they aligned themselves now to walk in the way of the word. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? After some time in Thessalonica, fruit is born. Lives get changed. Look at verse 4, Acts 17. Some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, 
joined Paul and Silas. I believe if you keep looking at Paul's life, you see a heart where lost people matter. Lost people. A heart where lost people matter. Can you imagine the joy Paul felt seeing some of his own countrymen surrender their hearts to this Jesus of the Scriptures? Can you imagine and picture the tears of joy running down his face as the multitude of Gentiles turn from their sin and turn wholeheartedly by faith toward the Jesus of these Scriptures? Paul had a heart for lost people. And when lost people are found, there's cause for rejoicing. When people forsake it all for the sake of Christ, and when they leave their old and their familiar ways to walk where Christ walked, when they pattern their lives after their master and begin to see that Jesus is worth it all, he's worth it all, there's nothing better than that. To know that you have been used of God to put his word into play in the lives of others and then see the fruit, as Paul was able to see some fruit here in Thessalonica, to witness men and women repenting of their sins, turning by faith to God and eager now to live for Jesus and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure Paul rejoiced greatly over the harvest that God had brought in Thessalonica. What a celebration! It must have been knowing where most of these new converts to the Lord had once been. Where had most of these converts been? 1 Thessalonians 1.9 gives us a picture of where they once were. Paul says how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. See, the culture of Thessalonica embraced idolatry. But I want you to see that the word of God broke through in this place. The Spirit of God came with power as the Word of God was heard. In fact, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel did not come to you, Paul says, in word only. Listen to how it came. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came in much assurance. That's how it came. It cut. It pierced. It penetrated. It judged thoughts and attitudes. Just like what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4. Says this word, this two-edged sword. Just like what it says it, it will do and can do. It did that in Thessalonica. So what we have is a picture in Thessalonica of... This, this, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 5 where the old is gone, the new has come. Behold, we have a bunch of new creations. That's the picture. And you know, as good as the harvest was, I'm sure the rejoicing was tempered a bit knowing some were still not persuaded. Look at verse 5, Acts 17. But the Jews who were not persuaded Becoming envious. Took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Some of the evil men. That word is a, kind of an interesting word. Some of the evil men. These were men who were hanging out in the marketplace. Um, these were guys that you might just call um, idlers. They're just hanging out. Um, loafers. I like one of the translations, louts. You know, these guys are just hanging out. They're just waiting for something like 
what's about to happen to occur. Someone just ask him, hey, can you stir up some, some, some conflict here, some trouble? These guys are just hanging out. So they find some of these evil men in the marketplace. What do they do? They gather a mob. Have we seen this picture before? Pretty familiar picture, isn't it? Set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. The people. That word demos, it's a, uh, it had in mind a, uh, in Thessalonica they had what was called a people's assembly. They had a citizen's council. And so the plan was to bring the, the missionaries, Paul and Silas, bring them out to the people, to the citizen's council, the, the assembly. That's what we read in verse 5. It's important for us to see that wherever God grants success from his word, you can be assured that somewhere, not too far removed, is opposition. In this case, the opposition comes from the Jews who were not persuaded. And so if we, if we look just a moment and contrast just a moment the heart of Paul, what we've been talking about, with the heart of those who stand in opposition to God's word. If you look carefully, oftentimes what you see is a heart of envy and a heart of jealousy. Envy is characteristic church of walking in the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. See, it seems that these folks were more concerned that a multitude of devout Greeks were now following Paul and Silas. Those devout Greeks were all lined up to be their next converts to Judaism. (laughs) And now by means of the preached word which to the Jews was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, Corinthians 1.23 says. God grants repentance. Many come to believe and receive the Jesus explained and demonstrated from the Scriptures. And the text says that when they couldn't find Paul and Silas, praise God they couldn't find them. There were some other brothers that probably cued them in on what was going down, and they removed them from the scene. They go to Jason's house thinking they're going to find Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are not there. Instead, they take Jason and they take some of the other brethren before the city rulers. Listen to the charges put forth. First charge, these who have turned the world upside down, they've come here too. Turned the world upside down. We could say that they were stirring up trouble. Second charge, these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. So we have this charge of sedition, that there is someone paying homage to another king, promoting another king. Very serious charge. The crowd and the city rulers are disturbed in hearing this, and the decision is then made. These missionaries must go. And Jason, you are not to house these men again. Understood. The text says that they took security from Jason and the rest of the brothers with him. In other words, there was this agreement that was reached that these missionaries are not to be housed and welcomed back in the city. One writer says that they bound over Jason and the others in the sense of extracting an undertaking from them that Paul and Silas would leave town, not return with severe penalties if the agreement were broken. So with that understanding and agreement in place, they let Jason and the brethren go. Verse 10 then tells us that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away 
by night to Berea. The time, it seems, has come to move on once again. Is it all worth the conflict? Is it worth it? The missionaries are about to head into Berea. But what about the result of life in Thessalonica? What about the new converts? Were the believers in Thessalonica going to walk with Jesus now that opposition had come? What, what would be the long-term results of the gospel preached in Thessalonica? You know, I'm grateful that we don't have to guess on some of these questions. We're not left in the dark of wondering what happened to the church in Thessalonica. We have in the Bible two letters from Paul as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. Two letters from Paul to Thessalonica. Both are addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul's heart was to see churches planted, developed, organized, led well, and thriving for the glory of God. Not long after leaving Thessalonica, Paul sends Timothy back to check on these believers in Thessalonica. He's concerned in light of the opposition that the persuaded might be inclined to shrink back. We pick this up in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians we read about this. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. He then goes on, and he gets word back, starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, Timothy has gone. He's been able to talk. He's been able to hear from them what's going on in Thessalonica. How are things going? Timothy comes back and reports to Paul, verse 6. He's brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. See, Paul is so concerned about these people in Thessalonica. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back to report. And these people are walking, still holding on to the faith in the midst of affliction, in the midst of trials. And for Paul, who's himself, he's going through affliction. He's going through trials. And when he receives that good report and he hears that these new converts in Thessalonica are standing fast in the faith, it's an encouragement to his own soul to keep enduring, to keep going. When you look closely at the heart of Paul, you see a heart of endurance, a heart of love for his people, a heart for the word of God, and a heart specifically for the lost. A heart that has been changed by the word of God through faith in Jesus Christ is a heart inclined to hear and do, to trust and obey It's a heart that operates by the Holy Spirit, love, characterized by love toward others, and not in the flesh. The spirit of what we see in those Jews who were not persuaded, spirit of envy, spirit of jealousy. 
I'm sure that Paul recalled these beloved brothers and sisters as he penned this first letter to the church. By the way, he penned this letter, it's believed he penned this letter while he was in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He wrote this letter not long after leaving Thessalonica. He's in Corinth and within a span of a couple months, he writes first and second Thessalonians. And I'm sure as he's writing, it was also a remembrance in his own life of what the Lord had called him to be about. It was a powerful reminder of of his life purpose and what the Lord had called him to. I get to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I get to see God transform hearts. I get to see others serving the Lord with their lives. I get to minister with some of these people whose hearts are ready to go. By the way, we'll get to it in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. There are these two guys, Aristarchus and Secundus. They are from Thessalonica. They end up becoming fellow laborers with Paul. They end up becoming, in fact, they also end up becoming fellow sufferers for the sake of the gospel as well. They're not just quoting scriptures. They're living them. They're walking in obedience to the Jesus of the scriptures. They're taking the baton of faith and they're running the race with me. Can you imagine Paul thinking all of these things as he's penning this letter and he hears the report from Timothy and he's encouraged, even in the midst of the hard time that he's in, he's encouraged that there are people in Thessalonica who are walking by faith, who are going to walk and endure to the end. Brothers and sisters, what does the world have to say about you? I know the priority and the more important question is what does the Lord have to say about you? But for just a moment, it is important to consider the question. If you were brought before the city rulers, what charges would they voice against you as it pertains to your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to have a heart that endures when times get tough because of the word's sake? Will your love for people wane when trials come? Will you submit to what this word says no matter the cost? Will anyone be able to tell that lost people really matter to you? The first charge that's cited against the missionaries was that the ones who had turned the world upside down or caused great trouble... They had come here to Thessalonica. That was the first charge. News had spread about the missionaries. News spread about their witness. What about your witness for Jesus today, church? If proclaiming the gospel from the source of the scriptures is deemed turning the world upside down, then by all means, let's get about the business of turning this world upside down. The world needs to hear these scriptures. They need to know. People still today need the Lord. Amen? You know people. They need Jesus as I speak. But you've put the conversation off. 
You've rationalized it. You've set it aside. If you have Christ, you've been empowered with the Spirit. And with the Spirit from on high, you are to be witnesses to Jesus all your days. That's Acts 1.8. So how's your witness? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would they be able to say of you, young man, young lady, dad, mom, This one is turning the world upside down for Jesus. I pray it would be so here in this church. I pray there would be evidence of a life that is lived out in such a way that it is a testimony. If turning the world upside down is taking these scriptures and speaking the name of Jesus. And by all means, I pray that's what this church will be about doing. Speaking the name. Is your heart in it? I leave you with that question. Is your heart in it? Paul had a love for people. He had a heart to endure. He had a love for this word. And something about Paul resonated with lost people. And this collision of his love for lost people and his love for the word, they came together and he understood that the word had power to save. Do you believe that? And do you see yourself living your days Pursuing something other than what it is to be a witness to Jesus with the power that he's given to you in the Holy Spirit. He's given to you everything you need for godliness and life, church. Is your heart in it? Let's pray. Father, as you have sent your son, Jesus, So too you have sent us into this world to speak your name, to live out Jesus, to exhibit a heart of endurance, a heart of love, a heart for your word, a heart of care and compassion and concern for those who are far from you. Father, we ask that you would grant us grace to speak. Father, I pray that we would begin to see around us a world that is turned upside down because of the good news of Jesus. And we pray these things recognizing that opposition will accompany a harvest of transformation. That's the testimony of the scripture. But we pray knowing that you are a faithful God and that you will sustain, that you will comfort, that you will establish us through every step of the way. Great is your faithfulness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.